So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2, and uh, we've been working our way through the first 11 verses, taking us quite a while, and uh, Lord willing, we will be able to at least complete this this part of Ecclesiastes 2. Um, with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. We'll start in verse 7. Solomon writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after a wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And Father, as always, we ask that you would open our hearts, we receive your word our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we'd see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed, our mouths that we would speak the hope and the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we go in obedience to Christ. May we see the vanity of, of the pleasures of this world and the beauty and the glory of Christ. Help us as we struggle with these things together. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great classics in cinema, I think, is without a doubt we can agree on, is the first Shrek. Is, is that something that is agreeable? Well, even if you, if you, you dis- disagree with me on that, there is a scene in Shrek where I believe it's when the Rob- Robin Hood and the uh, Merry Men come to uh, 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 rescue Fiona from the ogre, Shrek. And you remember they have this, this showdown. And through this showdown, Shrek gets wounded. And Donkey, one of the greatest characters ever invented by man, uh, is, is freaking out a bit. Hang on there, Shrek. If you see the, the white light, stay away from the light. You know, he, he, he's afraid his friend is going to die from this mere flesh wound. And eventually Fiona says, Donkey, I need you to do me a favor. Go into the forest, find you a blue flower with red thorns. He said, okay, blue f- flower, red thorns, blue f- flower, red thorns. Hang on, Shrek. Blue flower, red thorns, right? And he goes into the wilderness looking for this flower. You remember what Fiona tells Shrek? What's the point of the blue flower and red thorns? To get rid of donkey. And so there's no other purpose but to get the guy who was freaking out about the the situation just to get him out of the way so they can more uh, 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 helpfully serve Shrek and his wound. Well, that is what we call in the business a fool's errand, an errand that one would go about that is ultimately pointless. And I have no doubt you and I have had those moments where we are on a fool's errand. Maybe you are sent to the store. Maybe you're trying to deal with the government. Maybe you're calling the insurance company, whatever it might be. And you feel like at the end of the day, it is a fool's errand. Or maybe it is a little more personal. Maybe you've done something over and over again 
worked overtime at it only to discover that the thing you long for, the thing you're striving for, is ultimately a fool's errand. In a nutshell, what we have in these 11 verses is Solomon saying, I spent a considerable amount of my time in pursuit of contentment, in pursuit of eternal value, in pursuing fool's errands. Remember, I, I, I adopted this from Zach uh, Eswin's uh, Recovering Eden. You remember, this is the, the pattern that we've seen. He really focuses on entertainment, addiction, aesthetics, wealth, and pleasure. We've looked at the first three of those, and we want to look at the fourth and fifth one today. That what you have here is if, if, you, if you put all your eggs in any or, or, or multiple of these baskets, what it is you are doing is you are chasing vanity at the cost of eternal value. Let us start here with the vanity of prosperity. We see it here in verses 7 and 8. And ever since the Garden of Eden, Mankind has believed that if only we had just one more, whatever, we will find contentment and peace. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve believed that if only they had this one other fruit, they would have what it is they were looking for. Maybe you and I right now are thinking, if only I had that one other opportunity, if only I had that one other dollar, that one other chance, that's that one more break, that's, that's all I need is just one more, and then I can retire, and then I can be happy, and then I can have enough. Just as we discuss with laughter and entertainment, drink and art, what was intended by God to be used for our good often is turned into a personal or even at times a communal idol. That is to say, what, uh, what we do is we turn good things into God things. Wealth is certainly no different. We will either bless with wealth or we will curse with it. And while amassing wealth in every way available, the critic, that is uh, the name we're given Solomon here, remember the, 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 there may be two speakers in, in Ecclesiastes, some debate about that. There, there, there is Solomon the king, and then there is the critic. Obviously, it's the same person writing, I believe. But, but the critic here, what he does is, is in amassing all of this wealth, he discovers the dark side of it. Notice the first thing he mentions is that of property. He introduces it there at beginning of verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I bought male and female slaves. Now, obviously, in raising this issue, there, and, and in considering the number of critiques and attacks on the Bible regarding this issue, I do think we need to address it at least, in, in a, in, 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 at least for a little bit. The first thing we need to know about this context when Solomon mentions male and female slaves, the first thing we need to know is that slavery is a historical norm. Here's the reality. Someone in your ancestry was a slave. Equally true, someone in your ancestry was a slaveholder. That is the reality. It is a modern idea to abolish slavery. Even that, we... we, we we tweak it, don't we? Think about it. There are people right now who are doing manual labor for little to no money. We call them inmates. Right now, there are people who volunteer to, to enter an organization by which they will all make them dress the same, act the same, get up at the same time, do the same things, all for the good of their nation. We call it the military. 
<laughs> right? Now, military is good. Prisons are unfortunately necessary. Now, within that realm, we can have a conversation. But, but whenever we, we speak of, of slavery, we, 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 we do rightly believe it to be abolished. But at the same time, we, we, we have to recognize that at times the issue can be quite complicated. Now, this passage here in no way justifies slavery, but rather it is important for us to place it in its historical context. Christianity alone, in all the history of the world, Christianity alone condemned it and fought for its abolition. If you want a good historical narrative in this regard, I recommend to you a British politician, something I never thought I would ever say, a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce is the nephew of John Newton, who's most famous for uh, writing the uh, hymn Amazing Grace. But John Newton was one involved in the British slave trade. He would go down to Africa and... and, uh, uh, get slaves in order to sell them in throughout, throughout the West. He would eventually be converted. He was a very godless man, became converted, and became a type of monk, not quite a monk, but, but something like that, uh, became a, a very proactive preacher and, and, and advocated abolition. It was his nephew, William Wilberforce, who, when he was converted, uh, picked up the mantle of abolition, among other uh, ethical issues, and used his position in Parliament to push for abolition. And it was was the year of his death, I believe shortly after he died, I could have the exact timing off, that slavery was officially abolished in England without a single shot fired. He dedicated his life to it, and the reason he believed in abolition was because of the gospel. The abolition movement here in America uh, was motivated primarily because of Christianity. Now, there were plenty of Christians who, who believed and defended slavery. But you need to know that there would not have really been a strong abolition movement in America apart from the the presence of Christianity. If you want a local example of this, do some research on the founding pastor of Forks of Elkhorn, William Hickman, who's buried in Frankfurt Cemetery not far from Daniel Boone. Uh, He was very passionate about ending slavery. So the first thing we need to know when we come to a passage like this in the Bible or even any ancient text, slavery is a historic norm. The second thing we need to note, however, is that Solomon's slaves were acquired. Now, often men and women in the ancient Near Eastern culture and in Jewish culture would uh, offer themselves as slaves in order to pay off a debt. And so you could have, um, uh, if, if, if you owed someone a large amount of money, we get examples of this in the Bible. The prodigal son is an example of this. Remember, he says, Father, make me like one of your hired servants, and that you would treat me like a hired servant so that I might pay back the money I stole from you, my inheritance. And of course, the, the, the beauty of that story is he would never pay it back. What he needs his father to do is to forgive him in full and to adopt him as a son. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so it was common for men and women to sell themselves into slavery. The early Christians, if they discovered someone was a slave to an abusive master, what they would do is that they would sell themselves into slavery and use that money they get in order to buy that other person out of slavery. And so, so, so that is very common. Now, that is very different from American slavery. One of the things we need to, to do when we approach this issue in, in a historical perspective is to make sure that there is a difference between American slavery and other forms of slavery. Not all slaveries are the same. Um, 
Now, that doesn't mean that they're not both morally abhorrent. Of course it is, but, but there is a difference here. Now, the language here suggests Solomon possessed countless slaves. And unfortunately, history has shown that one's ownership of another person was historically a sign of wealth. And so Solomon is saying here, I bought for myself many, many slaves. There's another issue that we need to point out here in what Solomon says about slavery is that these slaves were long-term slaves. One of the things that sticks out about uh, Judaism in the ancient Near Eastern culture is that uh, slavery was a temporary lot in life. Again, very different from American slavery. If you were born into slavery, it's a high chance you're going to die a slave. Now, not that wasn't the case across the board, but it certainly was a more prominent case in, in America. Uh, of course, it was racially motivated. But in, in Jewish times, in ancient Jewish culture, uh, there was the year of Jubilee that, that you would work only so long to pay off your debts, and then you would be set free. But when Solomon says that he, he has acquired slaves who were born in his home, that demonstrates that some of his slaves stayed his property for generations. This is different what he has here. In fact, it mentions in the building of the temple the work of slaves in that regard. Now, this violates the Mosaic law in the year of Jubilee. And so he buys for himself property. Now, in this case, it is slavery, but of course it doesn't end or, or be limited to that of slavery. So to Solomon, property gave meaning, it secured wealth, and it gave him a sense of accomplishment. One does not need slaves to search for the same contentment in wealth and property. Uh, but after all, think about what else do we mean by the American dream? Now, historically, the American dream means a home you own, a car you can drive, and uh, a, a career that you can build. That, that was the American dream. Hasn't changed all that much, given the housing market what it is, the search for property and other, everything else in America. The American dream is fueled by property and prosperity. And although we don't approach it the way Solomon did back then, we still can fall for the same type of temptations. But it isn't just property he mentions here in the vanity of wealth. There are also possessions, and they are related. So he, he goes on to say in verse 7, uh, I bought male and female slaves, have slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Now, notice how closely the two ideas of property and possessions are. After all, he equates here, doesn't he? It sounds like, and I hope I'm not reading into it, he seems to equate slaves with herds and flocks. I don't think it's an accident that he, he puts them in a line. I bought for myself male and female servant slaves, and, and from my home came generations of these slaves, and I possessed for myself herds and flocks. You need to remind ourselves, and I know we'd all agree on this, that slavery dehumanizes fellow image bearers. And that is really what made Christianity so radical, is that Paul would come along and say that the male and the female— the rich and the poor, the free and the slave are equal before God. That was a radical message that Christianity brought. 
But what we need to see here is that whenever the possession of things becomes a priority, we end up dehumanizing ourselves in that we see ourselves as consumers, getting the new, getting the more, uh, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it might be. We dehumanize ourselves because we, we become consumers while simultaneously dehumanize others. Here it is by means of slavery and possessions of goods. Sin will always dehumanize. Now, notice that it wasn't enough that Solomon was wealthy, but that he had to have more than anyone who had been before him in Jerusalem. Now, does that language sound familiar? You and I use it all the time. Maybe not verbally, but certainly in, in our hearts. Think about it. Saul was great in one sense. David was greater. Then comes Solomon. What do you think Solomon's thinking? I've got to be greater est. I, uh, I've got to be the bestest. I've got to be that, that level even greater. And by greater, Solomon convinces himself that he must extend the borders of Israel, update properties, gather great wealth, and grow in power and influence. He, he lives in the shadow of his father, the great king of Israel. He says, it isn't enough that, 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 that I honor my father. I've got to prove myself to be better than my father. And one of the ways was through wealth. It is a dangerous game to tie our identity and value to possessions, to power, and influence. But it isn't just property and possessions here. There is also prosperity there at the beginning of verse 8. I also gather for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. So beyond wealth and property and possessions, Solomon was rich in actual cash. He had dug a big hole in his backyard, and there you would find all the gold and silver. In fact, notice he says that he gathered for himself. This is a language of a man who has earned his wealth. He was out in the sun. He worked hard. It wasn't just that he inherited everything, but that he, 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 has, he, has, uh, uh, he has grown his own nest egg. He grew his wealth beyond what anyone could have imagined he could have done. He has proven himself worthy. In fact, he's just the treasure of kings and provinces. This likely describes the tributaries that foreign kings and nations would pay Israel either for protection or to keep them from attacking you. I don't really have that today, but it's a great system, doesn't it? To go up someone with a large army and say, hey, if you don't give me my lunch money, all right, we're going to attack. And if you keep paying my lunch money, we won't attack. That's a great way to build your treasury. Or to say, look, that other nation wants your lunch money. But if you ally yourself with us, if you pay a tributary to us, we'll keep them at bay from stealing your lunch money. It was a great way to, to raise wealth for a nation. And, and it seems like that, that Solomon was involved in some of that. Now, the catch is, is if that nation does end up attacking, you have to then go and intercede. Solomon had become the most powerful and prosperous man in all of Israel and one of the most powerful and prosperous men in all the world. Isn't this the whole point of the Queen of Sheba story? She comes to marvel at the wisdom and the wealth of David's son. It wasn't enough that he had something, but he had to be greater. So not only did he have property, possessions, and, prop and prosperity, he also had uh, 
prosperity. Uh, that, the word there is supposed to be pleasure. Sorry, I knew that was wrong. He also had pleasure. The PowerPoints are not inspired by the word of God, nor are they inerrant. So he says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Now notice he has singers here. It's easy to skip over that because think about it. I could pull up my phone right now and I could play for you some of the greatest hits by Johnny Cash. Right now, I could do that, right? And you would be blessed for it, right? I mean, let's be honest. I could do it because I've got a little thing called Spotify. And if that goes down, I got a little thing called the YouTube. And if that goes down, I got Amazon Music. And if that goes down, I go to my house and grab one of my CDs, right? I still own like one or two tapes. You, you young kids, what a tape is. It's, 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 it's like a, a Spotify where there is no next button, okay? There's a fast forward button and a rewind button, right? That's as good as it gets. And once you get so far, you got to, you paying attention to this? You got to flip the tape, put it back in, and then you hit play and, and you go to the other side of the tape. It's, it's, I'll demonstrate another time. We don't have time now. But, but you don't have that at this time. You don't have anything like that. If you want singers, you got to get someone who sings, right? And, and they don't grow on trees, at least not the good ones. Solomon says that at any time, I can have a great array of entertainment. I can have an entire choir at my beck and call. Solomon could, could be serenaded any time that he wanted to. And it is possible that some of these singers were among his slaves. We, we can't say that for certain, but there is some possibility that is the case. And then he even mentions the concubines. These two were slaves. In fact, 1 Kings 11.3 says that Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, many of these were politically motivated. Think about it. If, if your daughter was living in another nation and you're the king and, and you have your daughter marry uh, that prince, that crown prince or that king, are you going to attack that nation? No, right? And so in, in using family for that purposes was a means of diplomacy. Uh, this gets really dicey in Europe uh, around the time of the Reformation and, 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 and the years following. It gets really, really complicated uh, because the, the, the Scottish queen is, 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 uh, is supposed to be married to the Spanish dude, but the Spanish dude is Catholic and Scotland's really Protestant, but she really grew up in, in France instead of Scotland, so she goes to take her throne in Scotland and no one knows is she Catholic? Is she Protestant? Is she really French? Because we don't like the French because we're Scottish. We don't like anybody. It gets really, really complicated after a while. But you can see that, that there is a political motivation for many of them. And, um, but, but regardless of all that, concubines were slaves who had few rights. And they had one primary function. And they existed for the benefit of their master. In this case, it was Solomon. So you see that, that Solomon has given us a sampling, if you will, of not just the wealth he possessed, but what it was used for and what good he thought he could get out of it. I think I've shared this story before, but when Man and I first got married, and we, we were still trying to figure things out. I, I shared a story how, how we moved our bank account from Owington to Louisville. That was Wednesday night. If you missed it, that's your fault. But um, uh, it was sort of a goofy story how, how we, we ended up stealing from my sister, who has the same first and last name um, as my wife. But, but we were at our bank in Louisville, 
And we just had to go make a deposit or something like that. And, and I had a, a little uh, Mitsubishi Galant, and, and it looked like it had a few miles on it because it did have a few miles on it. And it was quite the hand-me-down, but it, it got us from point A to point B. But on, on the side of, of the back window, I had a sticker that all it said was John 3.16. That was it. Didn't even write out the verse. It just said John 3.16. It wasn't a large sticker. Just, just put it in, in the back window in the little corner, John 3.16. And my wife and I get out of the car. We're mar- marching our way into the bank. And there's this guy waxing his car in the bank parking lot. Just waxing it. Like, like, uh, uh, the, you know, like, like he probably invented the ShamWow, okay? He's just going at it. That's a great reference. You all don't care. Uh, but, but he's just going at it. And he looks at me and he says, you don't really believe that garbage, do you? Well, I believe in more than my car. Right? I mean, here's a guy whose entire hope and dreams and future was tied to a car he was waxing in a bank parking lot. You can do that in the privacy of your own garage. But he had driven it a mile or two, and he might have gotten a bug on it. It's easy for us to place all of our eggs, all of our dreams and our contentment and our love into what we possess, in what we own, and in what we control. And if you don't believe me that this describes us as Americans, what happened the second there is a fear we may, we may run out of something at Kroger a few months ago? There came a pandemic that was a flu or a type of flu, and we went and got toilet paper. And not just toilet paper, but there was no inventory for other people because we feared not having enough. Because we Americans don't know what it's like to be truly poor. It is easy for us to fall for the vanity of wealth. And that vanity of possessions and property and prosperity and pleasure bleeds into what he says in verses 9 to 11. And that is the vanity of pleasure. All of this wealth afforded Solomon access to endless forms of pleasure. And that's exactly what we're doing in our country now. How many hours, particularly during, inter- during the pandemic, have we spent in mindless entertainment? It really is incredible what we do. Well, he lays it out here. Uh, he, he points out a few ways this demonstrates itself. First of all, was the pleasure of hubris there in verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. You getting a pattern here where all this is about? It's almost like he's got daddy issues. I've got to prove myself to be better, better than my neighbor, better than my father was, better than this or that. I've got to be number one. Now, these are the words of a braggart, and not the first time he's, he's done this in this passage. And it is striking how many of the decisions we make are driven by a need to feel superior. Our need for affirmation is a strong one. We want people to know what a good job uh, we did, and we want people to recognize what a good job that we did. 
Um, Look at me, he says. I'm at the top of the world. And not only that, but he claims to have maintained his wisdom. And and there's there's some real confusion here, some debate as to how, how to understand this. But it almost reads as if he's saying, I can swim in an ocean of vanity without the foolishness. And I struggle with that, really understanding some of this. How can you say I've maintained my wisdom while engaging in foolishness? I struggle with that. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I can't explain that. A lot of commentaries have got that figured out. I still haven't quite figured it out. Um, but it does demonstrate that like the critic here, many of us think that I'm the exception to the rule. Now, my neighbor may dip his toe in this and he'll just completely collapse. But I'm different. I'm a little wiser I'm, I'm a little uh, more seasoned. I'm more mature. Uh, I, I, I've got a, a bigger brain than that cat does. So, so I won't make the same mistakes as, as, as they have. But the lure of wealth is not so much about having more, is it? It's about feeling greater. And Solomon demonstrates that for us. But it isn't just the pleasure of Hebrews. It is the pleasure of the eyes. Here, beginning in verse 10. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Now, the temptation of the eyes is a common one throughout Scripture. For example, Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, if that is true, if your eye is healthy, your body will be healthy. The inverse is true, right? If your eye is unhealthy, the rest of your body will be unhealthy. Right. Um, my, my, my mother is, is uh, one of the things she likes to say is um, I can't hear you because I can't see you. I think I think that's what it is. Right. Uh, and and the first time I, I remember her saying that it just. What? Right. If I can't see you, I can't hear you. Right. OK, you do with that whatever you want. But but in certain sense, it does make some sense that we we put a lot of emphasis in in seeing. Right. Now, John will say something similar in 1 John 2.16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What you have here is a summation of every temptation will come down to at least one of these three, less the eyes, less the flesh, pride of life. In fact, think about what you have. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What is it that the serpent does? Don't you know that when you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will be wise like him. That's pride of life. And then you remember, it says that Eve saw the fruit and it was good for fruit. She saw it. That's the lust of the eyes. She tasted and it was delightful. That's the lust of the flesh. And then centuries later and a millennia later comes Jesus. And what is the temptation? The first temptation is turn these stones in the bread. That is the lust of the flesh. Another temptation is see all these kingdoms of the earth. They could be yours if the price is right. That is the lust of the eyes. And then it's throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, hundreds of feet up in the air, and the angels will catch you. That's the pride of life. See, it's the the sight. We, we, We not only want to see and be driven by our eyes, but we want to be seen by the eyes of others. And this is why in the Bible, the one who refuses to guard their eyes are truly blind. When John 2.11 says, Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
Jesus talks about this particularly in, in, in John's gospel, same writer, so, so you can see the connection between, between the epistle and the gospel. When To Nicodemus, he says that, that those who are in darkness, the light comes and will illuminate those who want to see, and it will expose those who do not want to see. And later that is demonstrated from John 3 all the way to John chapter 9 with the man born blind. You remember that that the one who is blind sees that Jesus is Savior, while everyone around him who kick him out of the uh, uh, synagogue, they are blind, though they see Jesus with their eyes. And Jesus makes that point. And out of that comes the great I am statement, I am the light of the world. The eyes is a major theme in the problem in, 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 in the Bible. The problem is that, that with searching for pleasure with the eyes, the problem is that the eyes never stopped seeing. I think we've talked about this previously in Ecclesiastes. Your eyes know how to do one thing, and that is how to take information in. Your eyes never stop seeing. Have you ever been on the Netflix, right, and you're just going at it? Do your eyes ever say, okay, Bob, that's enough for tonight? We're going to shut down for the evening. No. Netflix may try to do that to you, but your eyes aren't going to do it. Your eyes never stop seeing. Because in our heart is this need to keep taking in, to keep consuming, to keep receiving. Therefore, seeking pleasure with the eyes is an endless pursuit. You'll never see enough. You'll never get enough. You'll never garner enough. You'll never have enough. So that sight, that show, that movie, that game, that image, that model, that car, it will soon need to be replaced by something else. The pleasure of the eyes was not satisfactory. And then that leads to the pleasure of the hearts. In the Jewish Old Testament world, the heart was a central idea. Let me give you two ways the heart works. We can look at others. I just want to highlight two. First of all, the heart was a blood-pumping muscle. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. But sometimes when the Bible talks about the heart, it means the literal blood-pumping muscle in your chest. Can I give you a fun example of this? Uh, maybe this will show up on Jeopardy one of these days. I don't know. In uh, 1 Samuel 25, so we'll, we'll be looking at it in a few weeks in our Sunday morning study. It says, In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. What do we call that today? It's a heart attack. The Bible describes a heart attack. Now, I'm kind of glad that your doctor doesn't describe it that way, aren't you? Right? Your, your heart became a stone, right? <laughs> right? You've ever had a heart attack? You're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's about right. Yeah. Uh, that's a heart attack. His heart died, right? Therefore, therefore, he died. Now, in addition to that, the Bible understands the heart is more than a physical organ. In fact, in the Old Testament, there is no word for the, for the word brain. Hebrew doesn't have a word for brain. It doesn't mean they didn't believe in the brain. What it does mean is that they centered the seat of our emotions and intelligence and everything else from the heart. So when Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, he's not just saying, out of the abundance of your emotions. Now, that's true. You get angry enough, you're going to say something you're going to later regret. And someone will remind you of what you said, right? That's why if you're angry, get off the computer and phone, right? Get off the social media and email, right? Ain't nothing good going to come out of that. But it isn't just out of the abundance of our emotions, the mouth speaks. It is out of the abundance of the intellect. 
Our brains, our thought process. So this is why the Bible speaks of be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? But in the Old Testament Jewish sense, the heart is a place of thought, wisdom, knowledge, discernment, and wisdom. Thus, it is the home of desire. David, you may recall, desired, that is, with his heart, he desired to build a temple. That's a good thing. And it is in this sense the critic speaks of pleasure. Whatever his heart desired, he did not deny himself. But notice how my reward for all my toil is in, is, is, um, uh, ended in, in vanity. So he'll say, um, uh, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He, 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 he's seeking the desires of his heart, and what he finds is a desire to benefit himself and not others. And this is why endless pleasure and endless prosperity do not satisfy. You want to have a satisfying life? Be a blessing to others. You want to bless other, if you bless other people, you will find a real sense of joy. And that leads finally, and it bleeds into the pleasure of the hands. I thought I could get them all to start with an H, but I couldn't figure out what to do with the eyes. So please do not tell my preaching professor that. Just couldn't figure it out. The pleasure of the hands. This is the pleasure of hard work. There in verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is something um, I think we can all grasp. There is something freeing, isn't there, about coming home after a long, hard day's work? You've earned something. You've accomplished something. Um, one of the things that I'm guilty of is I love to mark things off of a to-do list. I'm very task-oriented. My wife's very people-oriented. So she'll sit there and talk to you for hours and accomplish nothing. Right? I don't want to do that. Right? If we're going to have a conversation, I plan on getting something out of it right? to fix some problem. You know, something's very male of me, very female of her. Of her. Uh, but I'm very task-oriented. Tomorrow morning, I'll get here, and I'll make a list of everything I need to do for the week, and one by one, I'll do that. And I, a lot of people, whenever I wrote my thesis, I, I spent a year doing that. Someone asked, what's your favorite part of writing the thesis? I said, turning it in. There was a sense of accomplishment. I like mowing yards. The reason is, is, is when you finish that yard, right, to look back, the, the fresh smell of mowed grass, right? And then this is a good, good feeling. And to see a job well done, there's something about that. The toil of your hands, the pleasure of the hands. And in the agricultural society, to work with your hands was critical. And it seems like Solomon is enjoying his retirement, isn't he? Look at all that I've built. I built this mansion. I built that temple. I built these fields that have blessed countless people. I've worked and I've toiled and look at all that I've done. In fact, he almost sounds like God on the seventh day, doesn't he? I looked back and I said, look at all that I've done. I considered everything I accomplished. And he thinks he can now sit back because the job is done. But what does he find? Vanity. And the second half of verse 11, when he speaks of vanity, is not just describing the vanity of toil. 
It's the vanity of everything that precedes it, including in our study today of wealth and pleasure. Ultimately, Solomon looks around. He sees wealth, power, possessions, property, slaves, and pleasure. He concludes it is fleeting. It is meaningless. And we, the reader, should take him at his word. And the chances are that we, the reader, if we are honest with ourselves, as honest as Solomon is, we would know he's telling the truth. Several, about a month or two ago, I went to go to Dry Ridge to meet with a, a pastor friend of mine. And on the way there, I went through Oynton because it's better than Scott County. Am I right? Am I? So I was going through Oynton County. It took 22 and I was almost about to cross the Grant County line. And the guy calls me. He says, I just want to check to see which way you're going. I said, well, I'm going through Oynton. You know, I'm more familiar with it. And uh, I like the country roads more than the interstate, especially in, in the cars driving. He said, oh, you need to know the bridges are out. There are three bridges on 22 when you, when you cross into Grant County. And, and the first two from the direction I was coming was knocked out. They've since fixed those, rebuilt those. Now the third one was knocked out. And from what I've heard, it's going to be that way for quite a while. So if you're ever going to Dry Ridge, you've you got to go through Scott County. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. So I called him and said, you know, I'm, I'm almost to that point. And I was seeing the signs warning me, you're going to die if you keep going. <laughs> and, and so he says, I tell you what. I know what you can do. You can go all the way around the whole county, go through Jonesville. Or you could take the shortcut. You go up this road, and you'll land in Jonesville. You'll come right in the dry ridge. It'll, it'll, it'll add 10 minutes to your drive, but nothing too fast. Okay, what is that road? He told me what it was. I found the road, and I was in a part of the county I've never been in my life. And I grew up in the county. In the same home, friends all over the place. I thought I'd been on every road in Owen County, but I'd never been on this road. I don't know if I could tell you where this road was or find it again. And I didn't know exactly where I was going. My GPS wasn't going to be very helpful here. But I figured something out. If you come across a road that branches off of that road and you don't know, is this the main road or not, there's a sign I discovered you should look for. A sign that says, no outlets. Or, or that is to say, dead end. I discovered that if I stay off of the dead ends, I'll make it to my destination. And what Solomon offers us here in these 11 verses are five dead ends. If you avoid them, you will make it to your destination. Avoid the dead end of mindless entertainments. Addiction, aesthetics, wealth, and pleasure. And there you'll see the contentments you've been longing for, the love we so desperately desire, and the joy that makes life a blessing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.